This episode is brought to you by Aura. That's O-U-R-A. The Aura Ring, from my perspective, is the single best wearable on the market. I use it to measure my sleep, activity, and readiness on a daily basis. I bought my Aura Ring several months ago before talking with the company's CEO on the podcast. I haven't taken it off since. I believe what gets measured gets managed. So if you care at all about your health, which you should, you have to measure your sleep in order to manage it. Aura measures much more than just my time in bed. It tracks my REM sleep versus deep sleep, my resting heart rate and heart rate variability, my temperature, my activity, and much, much more. For $299, you can get your own Aura Ring on AuraRing.com. That's O-U-R-A-R-I-N-G.com. AuraRing.com. Okay, let's get into it. you soon enough for joining me on the show today really appreciate you taking the time i've been looking forward to this conversation a lot um you are the founder and general partner at volt capital prior to that you launched a uh pretty new and, and interesting uh at the time and still now crypto community called token daily uh and you spun off a, a podcast with that as well and, and had some other things going on uh so thank you first and foremost for for joining me and uh, i think the best place to start would be sort of for those who don't know you so well to uh, just sort of tell your story from sort of as will as early as you're willing to start to where you are today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jake. Really appreciate it. And I'm excited to do this today. A little background on me. I am an engineer turned investor. So I took a non-traditional route to VC. And I, at the time when I was at University of Michigan School of Engineering, I got into crypto then. It, at the time, it was a really big talking point. It was more conceptual than what I believe to be practical, frankly, just because there weren't that many apps out or companies that were being built in crypto that really had uh, an addressable market to begin with. And um, I, I kept it in the purview in my periphery. I joined a startup called Alation when I graduated as a 20th hire there. We scaled it out. Uh, it's a successful post-Series C company now. Its most recent round was co-led by Salesforce and Sapphire Ventures. And um, and I also, while I was at Alation, launched a newsletter that had really humble, modest beginnings. We spent zero dollars on marketing. And I intentionally didn't try to scale it from a, you know, a paid dollars perspective because that usually tracks noise. I wanted it to be purely word of mouth referrals and have really organic growth because that keeps the quality of the community high. And uh, it grew like wildfire. We would have over 20,000 readers that were reading our newsletter daily and learning about projects in the space. And mind you, this was before the block, before Masari. At the time, I think it was just Coindesk and Reddit that really gave you any insight into what was going on in this space. Um, and, and soon enough, companies were coming to me to be featured in the newsletter proactively. So Lolly launched with us, Compound launched with us, and we started hosting offline events. And that really had our readership transform or evolve from a readership to a community, right? Because all of a sudden, you saw other readers, you were there face to face. Oftentimes they would discuss job opportunities and that ended up leading to uh, great talent being recruited to a lot of crypto companies very organically. And so uh, I remember like the COO uh, Desiree of, of Lightning Labs, which of course is the largest L2 solution on Bitcoin actually came in through the token daily community and was placed there. So at that point, I realized we didn't only build a network of information, we built something a lot more powerful, which was a network of people. And they were coming from, you know, fintech startups, Fang, uh, you know, they recently had their own company launched and, and a successful exit or were looking to do their next thing. And so they really ran the gamut from where they were coming from, but they were all united in this deep interest in getting involved in crypto and helping it Achieve, like reach the mainstream and, and taking it to the next step. So that that was really the genesis for launching Volt Capital, the fund, 
was to start putting capital behind the founders I was seeing anyway. Um, it was a very natural progression. And it, 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 I mean, I just remember standing at one point thinking, wow, I'm doing all the work that good VCs should be doing by sourcing these deals. And they were coming in inbound, helping these teams build out their companies. And, um, and I wanted to start really supporting founders from a capital perspective too, and putting uh, my money where my, I, I guess, where my words were, because I was writing about them. <laughs> and, um, and, and that ultimately ended up being our secret sauce for Volt Capital. Um, it's, been a journey and I'm, I'm so grateful to be able to lead this incredible team finding incredible founders and helping crypto cross the chasm a great story and uh and really well told i appreciate you uh going through kind of all the different steps and some of the decisions along the way i want to start by rewinding a bit and going back to where you sort of started with which was that you took a, a pretty untraditional path to becoming a VC or a crypto focused VC. And uh, that is, you know, you started off as an engineer. How did you become interested in, in engineering in the first place to the point where you went to, uh, to Michigan to study engineering? That's an excellent question. I, I was always fascinated by STEM in general. I was very analytical and uh, science and math focused as a as a kid and so for me it was really a natural progression Michigan has some of the best engineering programs in the world and I wanted to be able to build and meaningfully you know create things and I didn't want to go through uh, really a, a lot of these uh, these longer programs like for med school and a lot of these other professions where they are also more science-based but it takes a really long time i was very excited and eager to start life post academia and and contribute to industry and i found engineering to be the best route to get there and so uh it was really a logical <laughs> that that was the logic behind the decision and um, I mean, even before that, the way I got into entrepreneurship to begin with is I, I was always very entrepreneurial as, as a kid as well. Um, and I, I kind of had to be, it was kind of an act of desperation, truthfully. I grew up uh, a lot of my childhood uh, below the federal poverty line. And in order to get things done or make ends meet, I had to be pretty creative around what I, what I did and in opportunities I saw. Um, I remember in fourth grade, the first, this is, this is the first opportunity I had or I saw to, to make money in a meaningful way is I noticed that my friends had these see-through binders um, where there was a like plastic covering and you could put in photos and customize them in that way. Do you remember those binders? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. It's like a color yeah. binder with a plastic sleeve over it or something like that. Like, yeah, precisely. And they were all all our age. And I remember seeing uh, stickers that they put on and I realized while I was at some like dollar store, uh, I could just buy packages of these stickers, especially the seasonal ones to be around Halloween or uh, holiday season around winter time. And I could get them for 25 cents or 50 cents. And then um, upsell them to my classmates. And it's a convenience fee is how I thought about it. I could just sell them stickers and they can put them in their binders. And I, and the reason I was motivated to do this is because I wanted to go to something called the Harvest Festival. And it was a an event that our school put on around um, Halloween. And my family just didn't have money to buy the tickets to go. And so I was really determined to go. So I started selling these stickers and they had like little witches on them and pumpkins or whatever. And uh, I made enough to buy tickets for myself, all my sisters. And eventually you know, teachers caught wind of this and I had to wind down my operations. But I thought it was, it, it was really clever. I, I didn't even know what entrepreneurship was at you know, the age of nine, but I've always had that tendency or that in interest in going out and doing my own thing and, and meaningfully providing value to people. Yeah, I love that story, starting with stickers and now into crypto and, and more uh, 
you know, importantly, sort of ma making some some larger changes in the world. It, it's a very interesting story from uh, from the fourth grade to where you are today. And, and I love those sorts of uh, early entrepreneur, you know, people who were basically entrepreneurs before they knew what the word entrepreneur meant. Like you said, uh, those are like some of my favorite stories. So, you know, fast forwarding a bit, you go to Michigan for engineering, you discover Bitcoin there from Reddit, I understand. Can you tell sort of the the origin story around your interest and discovery of Bitcoin and crypto at large? Right. Uh, the white paper had been posted on Hacker News and subsequent conversations and these ongoing threads were on Reddit. And I remember following conversations and there would often be this own vernacular tethered to the community. So you'd see things like HODL and, uh, and, and other very like proof of work and there were these terms that I hadn't come across and they interested me and it fascinated me because I felt like I had gone, gotten a glimpse into this very niche community that was taking on a very courageous initiative to really reimagine the financial system. And people who know me know I'm very attracted to things on the fringe, uh, especially as they're starting to gain momentum in their you know, respective communities. And that's what really attracted me to crypto in the first place. So you mentioned like this, this, uh, you know, people, you know, who know, you know, that you're attracted to things on the fringe. Can you sort of elaborate on that a little bit? So like crypto is a, is a clear example where, uh, it started off with sort of, uh, you know, a, a very grif a very specific group of, um, you know, libertarians as well as sort of, uh, you know, crypto people and uh and it's developed into you know the, the popular narrative that it is today are there other things that you're looking at today or that you've sort of discovered in the past that fit this a similar mold yeah i mean even something as obvious or as simple as joining startups or even going the entrepreneurial route when i was in college that absolutely was not the cool thing to do, though now it seems like a rite of passage where a lot of people who would join East Coast consulting firms or finance are now joining Silicon Valley startups. But that definitely wasn't the case back when I was in college. And so I joined a group called Empowered, and this was the entrepreneurship group at Michigan. It was a pretty small community, and it was a community of these builders creating what they believed were missing gaps on campus, getting the sponsorship from the right departments and outside companies to make their visions come true. And oftentimes meaningfully helping people who would participate in these programs anyway, launch businesses, uh, get into great companies and startups. And and no one was doing that at the time. Like that was, it, it was, I remember talking to my roommates who were in med school and at the business school and they're like, all right, have fun doing that thing. And, and I would go to hackathons and those were also just starting to come on the map. And I just, I remember feeling so loyal and so excited about these communities because I was around some of the smartest people I knew. And they were talking about really paradigm shifting, world changing types of ideas. And, and and it was odd to me that everyone else didn't immediately see the value in these types of communities. And I realize now it was just early because I mean, it's been you know, almost a decade later and now almost everyone I know is doing a startup or people that initially thought what I was doing was weird in college are now uh, in Silicon Valley doing a lot of similar things. So it's been really cool to see that 180. Right, so there's this clear thread of community throughout um, all of this, you know, discovering the community when you're at Michigan, then going and, and building the community with Token Daily and realizing that there was enough power in there, not just the, you know, the readership, but just the people to go and actually create a fund sort of on the power of that community. What made you sort of decide to go and, and build Token Daily, build this crypto community when it wasn't sort of a you know, by any means, an obvious thing to do at that time. Have you ever read the book Where Good Ideas Come From by Steven Johnson? I have not. I actually haven't even heard of it. 
it's a book that goes through the history of innovation and how great inventions came about and different movements started. And there's a lot of emphasis on cluster theory as it pertains to groups of people looking to create. So that's everything from you know painting to writers and of course uh, industrialists. And you'll often find that there were these coffee houses or hubs where people would hang out and they were top of their field and they would build on each other's ideas. They would have conversations that then polish someone else's views on something. And they would oftentimes find ways to collaborate. So when we look at the greats, um, especially in the Renaissance or the age of enlightenment, uh, we often are surprised that a lot of these smart people were friends, but it actually is the opposite way. They were friends and they all helped each other become more polished in their craft. And that, resonates heavily with me, this idea that you only really move forward and are able to create incredible things when there is a space designed to allow those ideas to flow freely and build upon each other. So that really was the the momentum and the idea behind starting Token Daily to begin with when I think about what that initial spark was, is like conceptually a new community was always very interesting. But I think the real moment where it honed in on me that this had to be created for crypto specifically was when I remember giving referral codes to some of my friends to join exchanges and be able to purchase digital assets. And oftentimes these exchanges had these growth hacks or referral programs where you could get a percentage of whatever your referee purchased. So if somebody bought some Bitcoin, I would see a little bit of Bitcoin come up in my account because I got a little bit of commission on what they purchased. And soon enough, I started seeing really weird things in my account and digital assets that I would never purchase and knew they were vaporware. And and I'd ask my friends, like, who purchased this and, and what was the rationale behind it? And their reasoning was like, oh, well, a buddy of mine said this other person had seen it and it's going to be the next Bitcoin. And at that point, I just realized there was this real frag information fragmentation problem and people didn't know what they were buying into. They didn't know who they should be trusting. And that that to me seemed very broken and very solvable. And that is just what made Token Daily so clear to me. Yeah, it's a really interesting point you bring up, I think, from the book you mentioned uh, about sort of how really successful people tend to come from surprisingly small groups, like extraordinarily successful people come from, you know, the same group of friends. And this is actually something that sort of intrigued me for a while. I haven't spent enough time sort of uh, thinking about it or, or looking into it or, or reading books that might touch on it or anything like that. But um, it's always very surprising to me that you can have this group of friends that goes on to all be so tremendously successful on an individual level. And this is across, you know, technology and business, but also music and art and writing and all of these different fields where um, I, I sort of wonder, my first gut was to sort of connect it to something that you sort of touched on earlier, which was that there is this unique vernacular that that you found intriguing in the Bitcoin community of like HODL and uh, and terms like that, proof of work, of course, sort of inventing a language. And one of my sort of initial takes is that maybe there's something to a sort of mode of communication, like a, a very niche, you know, not just talking about languages in like English or Spanish, but something that's like a very specific slang that actually is... Um, you know, perhaps conducive to people in that group becoming successful or, or like hitting a nerve with society or whatever it might be. And maybe it doesn't have to be language. It can be sort of a, an aesthetic taste for an artist or something like that, sort of a fundamental business idea that's different than, than most people. But this idea that tremendously successful individuals can all come from very small communities is certainly interesting. Um, so you mentioned that, you know- yeah, Absolutely, I, I wanted to say one thing is that is one unobvious indicator of a massive paradigm shift or anything really gaining momentum is that it'll be reflected in the discourse. 
And I think the reason you'll see it in the discourse is because what's being built or created is so outside of what's normal or accepted now that there aren't even words, the words aren't even sufficient to describe it. And so there need to be new words formed. Um, and we saw this in the instance of, of in the early internet days with the word hypertext, for instance, or it was also called hypermedia. And Ted Nelson had actually uh, coined that in 1963 as a model for creating and used link, linked content online because there was no other way to describe it. And, and the paradox there is that because you have these new quote unquote made up words is people might not initially take it seriously. But the people who are curious about it are the ones who oftentimes are able to ride that wave as something gets more momentum and becomes the mainstream. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to be said for that idea that maybe, in, you know, the most novel inventions, the most revolutionary inventions sort of require invented words or invented, you know, sub languages almost to sort of keep up. Uh, there's just not there's just not the, the dictionary to, to keep up with some of these concepts from history that are new and revolutionary. So on that note, um, and, and I want to sort of stay along and talk about how you uh, ended up doing the fund and, and things like that. But to sort of continue going with this tangent a little bit, um, one of the things I think about a lot is that Bitcoin, you know, obviously, I don't know what the percentage is these days in terms of like Bitcoin dominance, uh, but uh, it's more than half of the market cap of all crypto combined uh, safely, I believe. And uh, and it's you know worth worth like a trillion dollars and everyone sort of sort of sees it as this inevitable or, or near inevitable winner um and i can't help but think you know i don't disagree with that perspective um necessarily but uh and certainly like my own investing approach is is mostly bitcoin when it comes to crypto but um i can't help but think that we sort of lack the words to uh or just like the concepts to imagine what the rest of crypto might look like. Because Bitcoin is, is pretty easy, right? Once you understand it, it's just like, okay, digital gold, check. And then like, you know, maybe something that's actually bigger than digital gold, we're actually transacting with it uh, more than we do like gold today. So it's, it's very like understandable to some extent. Whereas something even just next rung down like Ethereum, it's very hard to imagine how that sort of develops and how money is changing. How do you think about sort of the crypto landscape from like a million miles out in sort of this way, where it's just very hard to predict something that we conceptually haven't really seen before. Uh, by the way, Bitcoin dominance is at about 60.83% uh, according to, to TradingView currently. Um, but, but yeah, when, when you're taking the long view about where something is going, I think you do yourself a disservice trying to predict where it'll be 20 to 30 years out. And instead it's better to take a short, a more nearsighted approach to what do we see being created now that unlocks an adjacent possible that could lead to something else. Because oftentimes what everyone's going to be using 10, 15 years out is being built right now. It just isn't popular. And along that line, I mean, the things that we're primarily seeing or gaining momentum are in decentralized finance or DeFi, uh, financial instruments or tools that carve out traditional intermediaries and are instead replaced by more automated ways of executing financial services. So oftentimes these look like smart contracts. Uh, in the case of a DEX, for instance, or a decentralized exchange, it would be merely replacing or carving out a centralized order book and uh, and instead having both sides of the order uh, interact directly in an automated way. And if you look at the entire DeFi landscape, you'll see that they really are very similar financial products to what we have now in terms of leverage, insurance, or you know, DeFi risk mitigation. Uh, exchanges, like we said, decentralized exchanges in specific, but they're reimagined in a more programmable and automated way. And so that's been something that's been incredibly interesting. We've also seen a rise in interest in NFTs. Uh, one way of looking at them is art. 
online. Increasingly, we're seeing it as a way to unlock ownership or access to experiences that the original creator wants a handful of people to be able to access exclusively. And that's all to say we shouldn't also discount the immense importance of the unsexy picks and shovels that are being built now, right? Like there's still plenty of companies that look, smell, and feel like a traditional tech company, but just happen to support digital assets. And those are typically critical to helping crypto cross the chasm or any emergent technology is the ability to have um, very traditional types of products that make sense in today's market that have very familiar user interfaces that users can be able to interact with and gain access to the crypto sphere in this instance and have it feel seamless and doesn't feel like there really is a steep learning curve for them to be able to access these things. And there are plenty of great companies doing this, uh, like Magic for one, um, Value, uh, like the ALIU in Latin America. Coinbase, of course, is an example of this. And there are there's a Rolodex of others. Right. So a couple of those companies you just named, Magic and Value, uh, you've invested in through Vault Capital. Can we talk a little bit about how you actually went about transitioning the community from Token Daily to starting a fund to... Um, sort of developing the, um, I don't know if you call it like a thesis, but at the very least, like the perspective that you just sort of shared that some of these maybe, um, you know, unsexy infrastructural sort of companies are actually going to be key for the future. And and those are the ones that you want to sort of target to invest in first. Right. A huge problem I see in fund formation is that you'll have managing partners or general partners put a fund together and then throw some money at a marketing, carve out a marketing budget or throw some money at PR and call that a community. And having distribution channels, and especially when they aren't loyal to you or really bought in on your vision, and it's simply just eyeball impressions that are uh, you know, flitting from one thing to the next in, in these like two second market cycles, doesn't really mean much. There's um, like we've already discussed like earlier, but there's just such immense um, like there's something really powerful about having an organic, you know, living, vibrant community that is very focused on what your fund is doing or what your individual managing or general partners are thinking about or following these days, because they often have um, more, they'll, they'll index more heavily on what you say uh, because you've already built that trust and you've taken the time to build that trust. And they'll have feedback sessions with you. They'll tell you about things going on in the early days. And really it's just this flywheel that you've tapped into once you've built a community where they're coming in inbound without you having to do much work and you're both providing value to each other, both the fund and the community. Um, and, and I think it's a big mistake for any funds that don't take the time to build out a community before going out and trying to invest, uh, because it's just such a easy, simple, but then really high quality way to get into the best deals and see them very early. Uh, and, and in general, uh, the, and, you know, we're increasingly seeing more firms do this, right? So uh, we had Products Hunt started as this community of builders looking to find the next cool app. Uh, It drove immense value to the creators of these apps and products. And Ryan went on to launch Weekend Fund. And from a content perspective, if you look at journalists that have gone on this journalism to VC pipeline, uh, you'll see, you know, investing members, of Sequoia, for instance, um, Michael Moritz, I believe, started as um, uh, he, after a stint at Time Magazine covering Apple, then started investing at Google, Yahoo, LinkedIn, and, and otherwise, Om Malik, and uh, Alexia Benatzos, TechCrunch, and now runs Dream Machine. So um, I, I think people are 
catching on to the fact that there's a really valuable asset here that's built when you have a great community, when you have a great brand, great distribution channels, um, and are realizing that the skill set it takes to create those assets are often the skill sets that make you a great VC. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I think uh, you know, I've this is certainly something that I've been uh, you know, really uh it's been exciting for me to sort of witness with just even starting the podcast that serves as somewhat of a magnet I've found to uh really talented, smart, uh interesting people, a lot of people building, you know, new companies or uh interested at the very least in, in a lot of these new companies that are being built across crypto and longevity and um, you know, city building, some of these other sorts of themes that I've I've been able to weave together with sort of my guest list to date. And um, it sort of feels like uh, almost making, you know, I wrote this blog at some point a while back and I don't remember the exact specifics, but it was basically how you can sort of make your own luck in a way if you uh, sort of put out the right signal. And so it sounds like that's sort of what you were able to do in the crypto community specifically, where all of a sudden you had companies like Compound that wanted to launch uh, through Token Daily, and obviously that's one of the more notable names in, in DeFi, and so now you're investing in companies just like Compound, uh, and, and you know maybe not Compound necessarily, but um, other companies that sort of are drawn to the community and view it as sort of the right demographic of people that they want to have as as early users or evangelists or, or whatever it might be, and then uh, you know in the same in the same breath having you and your partners as uh, you know advisors is certainly something that makes a lot of sense as well. Um, yeah. And we'll have, and, and to that point, like we'll, we'll see a deal like a company like magic or a company like matrix league, which is building the Robin hood layer on top of esports, And I'll send them to some folks that uh, I think it lines up with their thesis and would be interested in something like this, or they'll see that we're on the cap table and ask us how we sourced this deal so early. And I just kind of laughed to myself, like, isn't it so, it's, it's so obvious, like it's always token daily. It's always the communities that we've already built. And it is almost effortless in that way because you're not always going, uh, you're not always having to go outbound. You're not always having to cold email. Um, it really is uh, this secret weapon. And I think any fund that's able to do it should absolutely invest the time in rolling up their sleeves and building that community because the i mean outside of genuinely just helping people have a space where they can learn and build and grow it ends up returning much more to you uh, in terms of i mean the companies that you'll see the people that you'll get to help um far more than than what you put in yeah no i totally agree and uh so so you mentioned a couple of your investments or of your first investments earlier uh magic and and value and, and feel free to to speak on those a little bit but I wanted to sort of call out another one, which is Bycoins, uh, a company that I believe is basically running an exchange in Africa. Um, and you wrote a, a really interesting piece on why Africa is extremely well positioned to be a major player in the crypto space for years to come. They've got basically more people, I think you wrote, entering the workforce in the next 30 years or something like that than the rest of the world combined. And they've got this sort of digital payments infrastructure. They sort of, you know, leapfrogged uh, going from like really, you know, not having anything to sort of skipping what the U.S. and and other developed countries have been doing for the last, you know, few decades or a couple decades or whatever it's been, and uh, jumping straight towards this sort of crypto future potentially. So, could you talk about um, buy coins, maybe specifically a little bit, but also just Africa and crypto and your perspective at large there? Right. Uh, so, as a as a fund, what we've seen, and actually, frankly, before I even launched the fund. I noticed that below and like underneath all of the fluff and speculation you'll find with a lot of these token projects is there are really strong equity companies being built that accrue value in pretty traditional ways. So you're looking at transaction fees, subscription lock-ins, a lot of the ways that traditional fintech companies uh, generate revenue and monetize, but are just doing that with digital assets now. And Bycoins is one of those really strong companies that saw a huge market opportunity, especially in context of a plummeting Naira, which of course is the Nigerian local currency. Uh, these people are looking for reliable stores of value. 
And even though we consider Bitcoin to be volatile, um, especially in the US, for people that don't have a reliable store of value, oftentimes that volatility is preferred to a currency that is crashing dramatically. And so Bycoins is a company that allows people in Nigeria and Ghana now, and they're aiming for Africa more broadly to purchase and send and receive Bitcoin, Ethereum and other digital assets. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense on, on Africa and sort of why you're so bullish. And, and I tend to agree. And, and there's a great article people can go and search uh, that Suna wrote that, that I encourage people to read for sort of the more in-depth uh, bull case for Africa over the years to come. Uh, another thing that, that a lot of people, uh, of course, are, are very bullish about right now is, is just more generally Bitcoin. We're in the middle of this um, really strong bull run that uh, I think a lot of people sort of expected to come sometime after the halving last uh, May and, and you know maybe not as soon as it did towards the end of last year and now still picking up steam uh, at the beginning of this year. Uh, could you talk about some of the sort of driving forces that, that you believe are at play here and, and what you sort of expect uh, for the rest of this, you know, hype cycle, quote unquote? Right. And before we jump into that, one last note about Africa. And I think it's something pretty unobvious and people miss is the reason that Africa is so uh, is so well positioned to be the next crypto hub is because of things like the usual suspects, there's rampant hyperinflation. Uh, they are a mobile first continent. And so they were able to leapfrog past the uh, traditional kind of setting up cabling and a more traditional landline type of uh, uh, you know, phone systems. And they're able to use uh, mobile phones. They're mobile first. They use it for sending and receiving texts pictures and payments are the three top use cases. Um, but outside of that, I think what people fail to realize is that the average age on the continent of Africa is 19 years old. And that's incredibly important because these people are so enterprising, they're addressing massive gaps in, in the market. And the statistic that really blows me away is that in 15 years, around 2035, the number of working age people that will be joining the workforce from Africa will outnumber the rest of the world combined. So it's very important to understand what those youths are thinking about and what they're building and what they're spending their time on because it will be the growth story of the decade and they will be shaping the future of crypto, fintech, and many other tech sectors. Uh, with regards to what we're seeing uh, on a macro level in Bitcoin and crypto, uh, it's no secret that we're in a bull market now with regards to the crypto market. Um, but what's interesting this time around is the running joke had always been institutions will come in three to six months, we'll see them in three to six months, and every three to six months, that would shift to another three to six months. But I mean, look at it now, like we have uh, Bitcoin on Square's balance sheet, Tesla's balance sheet, um, and at the point where you have, you know, corporates allocating to this uh, from their treasury is, it's, it, it, it's it be kind of it's telling us that there's something here that can't be ignored, right? The institutions are here. People are taking it more. People are taking Bitcoin more seriously, and with that kind of legitimacy, it really is kind of a flywheel. It's kind of this virtuous cycle where because um, other institutional employees can point to Square and Tesla, Mass Mutual, and others having an allocation of Bitcoin. Um, it then allows them to point to a precedent and allows them to get buy-in from their own stakeholders. So that's a huge moment that really can't be understated, not to mention PayPal with Venmo being one of the largest uh, payments channels in, in the world, allowing people to now purchase Bitcoin and, and send and receive digital assets. So it's a really huge moment for the crypto space in general from a pure institutions and corporates perspective. Outside of that, I mean, if you're looking at 
conditions that really made this ripe to happen. Um, I mean, you can really look no further than our, our off-balance sheet liabilities and on-balance sheet liabilities as a country. Um, the stimulus bill clearly didn't do us any favors <laughs> with regards to people's perception of the U.S. dollar and what it's worth. Um, we experienced downward drag on productivity. We had massive disruptions in supply chains, and uh, we were at over you know 23 trillion in debt just last year, and that's not counting off-balance sheet liabilities to an aging population. And a lot of these events cause people to really take a step back and reconsider where they're storing their wealth. And at the point where uh, your dollar and in many other countries is far is a situation far worse um, at the point where you anticipate losing value and, and losing real wealth that's stored there you're going to look for other alternatives especially um, when there are other vehicles that seem to be making making more money and we saw this with um, more interest in momentum stocks and we also saw this with renewed interest in cryptocurrencies everything from bitcoin and ethereum all the way to nfts yeah it's it's crazy how everything you know i i basically couldn't imagine anything that could be happening that would be sort of more in favor of bitcoin years ago you know a decade or so ago when bitcoin was first created there was this you know somewhat delusional i would argue dream uh, of course you know ended up being right but at the time arguably delusional dream that this was like the future of money or you know peer-to-peer -peer currency digital gold whatever sort of the vision was at the time uh and it was just sort of a fool's errand when when the price of, of bitcoin was under a dollar and whatever it was but um all of these different factors that was of course coming after 2008 and sort of like the recession uh and now we have money printing going on that just blows that out of the water and, and completely dwarfs anything that happened in 08, 09, uh, and sort of gives real world reason to sort of buy into this inflation. And, you know, Bitcoin is a deflationary asset sort of story that went from hypothetical to very real, very quickly with sort of no hype cycle. You know, the last time Bitcoin was really uh, on a bull run was like 2017. And so it hasn't really had the opportunity to react to all of these changes that have happened in the world. And, you know, that, of course, is just one of them. The other is sort of corporates um, getting in, like you mentioned. And I think, you know, these things aren't necessarily exclusive from each other. It all sort of connects. Maybe the corporates are seeing this inflation uh, around the corner and then that's why they're reacting. Um, and I personally am sort of curious to see if and when governments start to follow suit with their treasuries. Um, and I just see a lot of exciting factors, you know, at play. And it, it strikes me that we're still very early and like it just in the corporate channel alone, right? You mentioned Square and, and Tesla, but Square, you know, Jack Dorsey has been a, a Bitcoin evangelist for some time and, and Elon Musk is Elon Musk. Uh, so it's, it's a little <laughs> bit of a different company. But uh, once you have like just sort of regular run of the mill companies like Chipotle or, or whatever it is, sort of putting a piece of I mean, we have Mass Mutual, which is an insurance company, you know, we're crying out loud, also holding Bitcoin. So at that point, it's it's even if you are looking to Square and Tesla being more of these frontier types of companies that would be willing to dip their toes at the point where you have institutions like Mass Mutual also uh, getting into Bitcoin, you've definitely become a, uh, a bona fide macroeconomic asset. Um, and I also wanted to add the other thing that I, I heard, especially when we initially went into lockdown, uh, this is back when we were 23 trillion in debt. Today, national debt stand, stands just shy of 28 trillion. But the, the most common response to uh, the lockdown and what happened with Bitcoin's price was Bitcoin's behavior was correlated to the rest of the market. And the common critique and the common tweets people were putting out, well, were well, we thought Bitcoin was an uncorrelated asset. Uh, looks like it wasn't, you know, didn't live up to the expectations we had. How could it also go down while the rest of the stock market's plunging? And I, I think the reason people had that initial response to Bitcoin's price behavior is because 
Um, they don't distinguish between deflationary and inflationary shocks. And I wrote a, an article about this in that Bitcoin is designed to hedge inflationary shocks like wars where there's increased spending and money printing. But Bitcoin doesn't hedge deflationary shocks like pandemics or epidemics. And the reason is because in a deflationary climate, cash is king because people are buying less. There's lower demand uh, there. And because there's lower demand, prices of goods or CPI decrease. Um, and because price of goods are going down, there's a reduction in uh, the supply or there's a reduction in production. So supply contracts. Then when that happens, of course, there's increased unemployment. Um, simply because they're not producing as much, companies lay off workers, which leads them to spend less, and the cycle continues. And so in that environment, if the dollar or cash is becoming king and general prices are going down, the value prop for Bitcoin as a store of value, as the dollar is increasing value, all of a sudden doesn't make much sense, right? But the reason that but, but what people fail to realize is that the response to deflationary shock, which is usually met with more money printing, as we've seen, is actually what triggers that um, uh, that to like, that is what essentially causes Bitcoin to gain more momentum, is that you have an inflationary response to a deflationary shock. And that's the part people didn't really realize at the time when they were when they were kind of had already decided Bitcoin failed in its mission. Uh, but it's what we're seeing now, right? Bitcoins uh, certainly increase in value. We're in the early innings of a bull market is what it looks like. And um, and this inflationary, res th this response that uh, to, to print money and kick up the, the boot up the money printer is what is largely driving uh, a lot of this value being poured into an asset class like Bitcoin. Yeah. So, and it's interesting to hear you talk about how we might still be in the early innings of this bull run. Uh, I know there's some taboo to sort of discussing price. I personally think, and I think I've heard you or, or read from you writing about uh, how, you know, price is actually important and not something to sort of be avoided. It really shouldn't be this sort of taboo thing. It's it's critical to the adoption of it, sort of these these hype cycles of, you know, attached to the price going up and down. So definitely curious to see sort of where this where this bull run ends up. And just like a quick, quick question. Do you expect that the crash, you know, thereafter the peak will look like it has historically in like the 70, 80 percent pullback range? Or do you think there's something to be said for the argument that with a lot of institutional money and in now um, it could be a little less dramatic than that? Right. I've heard I've heard opinions and read analysis on there being a higher support level because corporates are invested now and holding this in their treasury. Uh, look, all I'll say is I'm not in the in the game of fortune telling, even though we do run a token daily crystal ball post annually. Huh. Um, but if you look at previous cycles in the context, if you look at Bitcoin's price behavior in the context of having cycles, we have seen a pattern and the pattern does typically look like a run up or you know, tremendous bull market uh, up until you know a year past the halving and then a subsequent crash. And so far we haven't seen anything contrary to that pattern. Uh, it is possible that this time could be different, but anyone who tells you they know with certainty what will happen is uh, <laughs> is lying. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and I didn't want to put you on the spot for a, uh, a crystal ball prediction, but I, I did like that article and, and encourage people to go check it out. Basically, I don't know how many it is, 20, 30, 40 of your friends who uh, make their predictions for 2021 in crypto. And you can actually look back and check them on like 2020 and 2019 as well. So that's, that's kind of fun. Um, last question, because I know we're we're running close on time, but uh, your family is, is from Lebanon. You mentioned growing up, uh, you know, below the, the poverty line. I'm curious how uh, these sort of, you know, this this uh, unique background, uh, and I don't know if you actually were, were born in Lebanon or, or here in the States, but how this sort of background or, or, you know, your parents' background even sort of contributes to your perspective uh, differently than some of, you know, the people you might 
engage with on a day-to-day basis in VC or in crypto, um, both, both in terms of crypto, but just generally in terms of like your perspective on life. Right. Yeah. I, I was born in the States, but my entire extended family and parents are from Lebanon and that's giving, given me a unique outlook on different financial systems and how reliable they are and how much of a top-down currency directive really tangibly affects people's lives. Um, the, you know, the lira losing, the Lebanese lira losing about, you know, over 80% of its value now when it had historically been pegged to USD and, and followed that price for decades was fairly unexpected, though money has always been a stressor for the lion's share of people in the country, uh, this did come as a shock. And I remember telling my mom uh, and my family that, you know, despite the capital controls, we should definitely be sending money. And they were like, well, we can't because it has to go through the bank. And I remember thinking, well, this is, yeah, this is why this this is why Bitcoin exists. Like this is why this whole this whole crypto thing we're doing, I'm doing, um, is is designed to solve these exact problems. And that was the real moment where my, the rest of my family and many people in Lebanon started really understanding on a visceral level why Bitcoin matters and why this reimagination of a financial system matters because it gives people the option to exit a system that isn't working for them. And personally, uh, growing up when I was really young, uh, money had always been a stressor. So if I can contribute to anything or help along or, you know, meaningfully put capital behind the companies that are helping alleviate that stressor for people and building more inclusive financial systems, then uh, that's something that resonates with me personally. And I'm grateful that I get to do that in my work day in and day out. Yep. Well, that is a, a great place to, to end off. I appreciate it again, Suna, you coming on the show today. It's been a real pleasure talking with you and I really enjoyed it. Um, can we point people where they can go and, and follow you as you sort of progress with Volt Capital and otherwise? Sure thing. Uh, people can always reach out to me at Suna at Volt.Capital. And we also have uh, our a landing page for Volt Capital, just Volt.Capital. And if they want to subscribe to the Token Daily newsletter, they can always go to tokendaily.co slash join dash newsletter. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. 